Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Uh, folks who have been TechDirt followers going way back uh, will know that one of the key things that we focused on in the earliest days was uh, really on the nature of internet business models. Uh, there were all sorts of questions uh, going back to sort of the 90s about how internet websites would make money and trying to understand the economics of the internet was really kind of a, a key challenge of the 90s and one that I, I still think many people got wrong both at the time and, uh, and now, you know, 20 some odd years uh, in the future. Uh, unfortunately, uh, some of those people were running companies, the, the people who didn't really understand these debates were running companies uh, who completely failed to understand uh, how the internet would change entire industries and, and in some cases completely wipe out existing business models. Now, of course, over the past couple of decades, it seems that a few dominant business models uh, have really developed online with the biggest, of course, is the somewhat intrusive targeted advertising model uh, built on an even larger collection of data. And this has made a bunch of people, um, well, both incredibly wealthy, but also has made many other people incredibly uncomfortable uh, for very good reasons. Uh, there are certainly some other business models out there, including sort of freemium and subscription type models, but with varying degrees of success. Um, it still sometimes feels strange that, that people believe that many of these earlier debates about internet business models uh, and about the nature of, of how the internet should work and how it should be funded and how things should function, uh, that those were a, a sort of evolution that has now ended and that there is no more to be done in, in the space of how the internet uh, and business models should work. Uh, I'm hoping that this is not true and that we still have another round of, of uh, evolution in the internet business model space. I know that uh, Mark Andreessen, who of course was a creator of the first graphical web browser, has admitted in the past that he thinks one of the biggest mistakes that they made in early browser development and early HTML development was not building payments in as a part of the protocol of the web itself. You know, the web may have developed quite differently, I think, if payments were built in uh, into the very infrastructure in the early days, uh, rather than added on separately, uh, usually in a proprietary method. That's why I was really fascinated recently to learn about the proposed web monetization standard built on the Interledger protocol. And this is an open protocol and an open standard for better monetizing the web and hopefully uh, enabling a new generation of more creative and perhaps less uncomfortable business models for the internet. Uh, we'll get into the details of how all this works in a moment, uh, but I was happy to learn ab about all of this. Uh, about uh, And uh, based on that, about a month ago, we enabled uh, the web monetization standard on TechDirt via a company called Coil, uh, who's really leading the charge on all of this. Uh, if you get an account with Coil, you can help support TechDirt and a bunch of other websites that have implemented this. Uh, and we're hoping to do a lot more creative stuff with COIL and web monetization in the future as we explore uh, its possibilities. Uh, but even, you know, the history of how all of this came about is, is just really fascinating to me. So today on the podcast, we have Stefan Thomas, who is the co-creator of the Interledger Protocol uh, and also the founder of COIL, uh, which was started, as I understand it, to sort of help make all of this work and to make it useful. So uh, Stefan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm very excited to, to talk about this. Cool. So um, let's go back a little bit and, and can you sort of explain how did the idea for the Interledger protocol come about and, and what were you trying to accomplish with it? Yeah, absolutely. So my, my background is I, I kind of grew up with the web and, and I actually really enjoyed your intro kind of talking about some of the, the early days and, and the lore of the web. 
Um, I, I'll tell tell one very quick anecdote before I get into sort of sure. the history of Interledger. Um, I was researching a talk the other day about um, that I was giving about micropayments. And um, I looked up the definition of the word micropayment and uh, in Victionary, and, and it actually mentioned that the term is credited to be coined by Ted Nelson. And, you know, I'm huh. sure most of your listeners will recognize yeah. that name, but uh, he was sort of um, the creator of uh, hypertext and a lot of the ideas that, that um, you know, later informed the web um, and a lot of the really powerful tools have been built on, on the internet since. And so he's really one of the... Yeah, Godfathers he, he did of... the, the the project Xanadu was was his big thing, which was sort of a, a pre web web, uh, and then when the web came about, he was always kind of grumpy that it didn't reflect all of his thinking. But, exactly. but I, th yes. I think he would probably take offense that you use past tense there. Like Xanadu is still very much going. Um... Sure, that's that's that's. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes. And it's a very interesting project. Like, you know, when you were talking about sort of the history, like it is always for me, so, so important when you're trying to build like, you know, this, this to you, the cliche term, like a better future to really understand what people have tried in the past, what has yeah. worked, what hasn't worked. Um, and so the reason he came up with the term micropayment was he was envisioning, you know, what we would probably recognize as something very similar to the web. And he was thinking about like, well, people are going to put really valuable content on this. So how are they going to get paid? Like, how are they going to monetize it? And that's how the word micropayment came about. Huh. Um, it's a really fascinating story. And, and there's a couple of, of these kind of anecdotes that sort of, you know, weave their way throughout the, the history of the web where people have run into this problem. I think, you know, in my favorite anecdote about the web itself was in the HTTP spec, the, the 1.0 HTTP spec. Um, there's these different error codes that are reserved. Um, and, you know, a lot of people probably recognize 404 for if you don't find a page. Right. Well, even before they define that code, um, there's 402, which is payment required. So you're trying to access a page and, you know, it, you haven't paid for it yet. And so there's right. an error code for that. Um, but the standard in terms of description, it just says reserved for future use. And uh, <laughs> um, it, it, it was like that for a long time. Um, and so really what, what, what web monetization is trying to do is like, you know, resolve that problem that dates back all the way to the sixties to, to tell Nelson's writings, um, is to like, how do you actually, you know, it's great to share all that content, but at the end of the day, like, if you want to keep making content, if you want to make better content and more production value, like at some point, you're going to have to have a way to, to make money, um, and to fund that effort. And so, you know, how do you do that now? Let me go back a little bit to kind of the history of Interledger first. So sure. um, as I mentioned, I grew up with the web and, and as, a, as a freelance web developer uh, for many years, I kind of experienced a lot of payments friction. I also um, moved to a different country. I'm originally from Germany and I moved to UK. Um, and I also experienced a lot of friction from that where, um, you know, it was hard to get a bank account. Um, you know, if you're a freelancer, your income varies a lot <laughs> up, up and down. Um, and so it was hard to keep a bank account when you would overdraw it, then the bank would kick you out. Um, and so I kind of always viewed the financial system as something very archaic and, and high friction and, and just not a pleasure to deal with. And then by contrast, the internet seemed to constantly get better at a really rapid pace and it allowed all this experimentation. And I felt like I could participate, like I could come up with a cool website or a cool open source project and people would use it. I didn't feel like that at all about the financial system. Um, and, you know, kind of fast forwarding a decade or so, um, I, I had just uh, wrapped up a company which was incidentally um, related to monetization. We were helping publishers kind of convert their old back catalogs from PDF over to HTML so that they could put it on the web um, and put ads on it. Um, and so as that company was winding down, I uh, found out about Bitcoin. This was like 2010. And this really seemed to take that approach of like open source software and a participation culture and try to apply it to payments. Um, and so I got incredibly excited about it and, and sort of made it my full-time passion um, as an unpaid <laughs> Bitcoin volunteer. <laughs> um, and, you know, that lasted for a little while um, until I started to realize some differences. So Bitcoin, obviously, it's a, it's a digital asset, so you can actually buy it and invest in it. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember like some people started to make a lot of money off of that investing. Um, 
I personally, I had to pay rent as an unpaid volunteer. <laughs> so I ended up not making as much. And, um, I, I don't know. I just, I also recognized that like changing the system was very difficult because it was this like very shared infrastructure. Like, like one of my, um, friends in the community compared it to, you know, changing out the engines on a 747 mid flight. <laughs> right. Um, and so you kind of contrast that with the web and the internet once again, where it seems really, you know, agile and I can experiment on my own. Whereas like with Bitcoin, when you wanted to make a change, you kind of had to convince everybody right. and it was a risk, right? There's like billions of dollars at stake. Right. Um, and so it just becomes very slow moving. And so I got a little bit disillusioned. Um, and I started thinking about how to solve this problem. I, I joined a company called Ripple. Um, I became CTO there. So I had a little bit of clout to, you know, fund some research into this. Um, so we ended up creating a little research team to look into this problem. Like, how do you actually make a, you know, payments technology that is more participatory than the financial system, more agile and flexible than blockchain? And it doesn't create these blockchain and it doesn't create these, like, you know, blockchain had these coiner and then I was an XRPer and they were all always at each other's throats. And right. like, I, I'd never experienced that with the web. Like, like you could be, you know, a react user and someone else could be an angular user and you could still be friends, you know, like that, that was very different. Um, and so, yeah, so that's kind of how IntelliJ originally started was to kind of take some of the internet ideas and apply them to payments. Yeah. And so, so to some extent, would you say that sort of a fair description of that is, is kind of, um, separating out the, the, the currency part of the protocol? Is that, I, I'm not, I, I don't think that's exactly right, but you know, a, a lot of the issues that you were talking about with, with Bitcoin, I think was driven by the fact that there was this, you know, money element that is included within the, the, um, the protocol itself. So is, is part of the reason why you could build something like interledger without having everybody beat each other's throats or without the, you know, possible risk of collapsing an entire financial system based on, <laughs> on a single change. Is it, is it because you're sort of taking the direct currency component out of it or is that not, not an accurate summarization? Yeah, so that's a really important part of it. And it kind of leads you to the answer. And again, like it's, it's all about, for me, it's all about learning from, you know, what has worked and hasn't worked in the past. Mm -hmm. And like one thing that the internet did extremely well is the, the part of the standard that's actually global and applies to everyone in all situations is, it's just the internet protocol itself. Uh -huh. Um, there is the routing protocol, which is global in some sense, but like, for example, you're, you're, and when I say the routing protocol, the modern version of it is BGP four. Um, so what your phone does is it speaks internet protocol, but it doesn't speak BGP. So even that isn't like entirely global where it reaches into all the, the, the far clients of the internet, but the internet protocol itself, that's truly global. And so they made the very, um, clever design decision to keep that part as simple as you can possibly make it. it it's, it's called the simplicity principle for, for the internet and our internet architecture. And so, um, what that meant was rather than specifying a lot of different things that, that you could specify when you're talking about communication, like, um, how to do retransmissions or, um, how to do, um, error correction or all these mm -hmm. kinds of things. Um, you kind of said like, well, let's kind of specify, you know, the absolute minimum. And, and what is that? Well, it's sort of an address format, right? The IP address, the internet protocol address. Um, it's a, a way to wrap the data. So you have like a length field. Um, and then they added some other flags and things, which, you know, I think if we could go back now, maybe they could even be simplified and removed, you know, but, right. um, they got pretty close to something very simple. It was just a data format for little packets of data. And from there, um, you also have this kind of concept of, of, of routing tables, but again, very minimal where it's just sort of looking at the address and saying like, okay, well, for addresses that start with this, we're going to route this way for addresses that start with that, we're going to route that way. And even just the population of that routing table is already out of scope for the internet protocol. It's, it's part of BGP, um, or, or other routing technologies as well, right. routing protocols. And so we kind of took that approach and we applied it to payments. And so then you start looking at things like authentication, right? Like how do you verify that you're the owner of a, a set of funds? Um, how are transactions recorded? How does, if it's a distributed system that's recording the transactions, how does it come to consensus? 
all these things are specified when you're talking about a blockchain system like mm -hmm. Bitcoin, um, but they're just not specified in IntelliJ at all. And IntelliJ just leaves it up to um, protocols either below or above. Um, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second um, to figure out. So uh, what do I mean by below? So in the internet's case, this would be like Wi-Fi, Ethernet, mm -hmm. um, solving some of the physical challenges of moving data around. And so with IntelliJ, it's no different, right? Like you have to solve the physical challenge of if you want to pay in gold, eventually some gold bar has to move from A to B, you know, like at some point, right. you know, you can do a lot of stuff digitally, but at some point something's got to move. Um, with digital currencies, like it does go down to, um, you know, some ledger needs to be updated somewhere. Um, so in the case of the US dollar, that would be the Federal Reserve ledger at some point needs to be updated. But again, most of the time, like when you do a credit card payment or something like that, you're not necessarily updating the Federal Reserve ledger for that. Right. Um, so there's, there's a lot of layers to it. Um, and you can just from my description, like I'm struggling to, to, to simplify <laughs> it down. It's like it, you're, it, it, being able to exclude all of that from your global standard is a huge win. Um, and then, so we've talked about below, let's talk about above. So above is all the applications that want to ride on this infrastructure, right? So in the case of the internet, you've got email or mm -hmm. you've got the World Wide web. Um, you've got video conferencing and like all kinds of different applications that have custom protocols that are riding on top of um, the core internet protocol. And once again, like with payments, you have a lot of different use cases, right? You have remittance payments, someone's sending money to their family back home or um, someone's getting paid um, or um, someone's paying for a, a, a purchase. Um, there's all these different use cases for why you send money and they all have slightly different requirements. There's a, a standard in the payments world and I know you, your listeners will tune out if I talk too much about it, but I'll mention <laughs> it briefly, which is called uh, ISO 20022. Um, and it is a meta standard. So it's actually a standard more for how to make standards. And that's because of the scope of what it's trying to tackle. It's trying to specify all the messaging for the financial industry. So like if a bank talks to another bank or a corporation uh -huh. talks to a bank and things like that. Um, and you can imagine the number of cases that um, that it has to deal with. Like, I remember looking through the standard, just flipping through it. It's like a 10,000 page document. Um, and I actually, I actually had a printout of it. Um, and it's, um, it talks about things like, uh, wage garnishment and how you <laughs> reference the cause of wage garnishment in a financial transaction, for example, like all wow. kinds of stuff like that. And so being able to exclude all of that is very powerful. And so what you end up with, and, and again, both in the case of internet and in the case of IntelliJ, is sort of a simple packet format. In one case, you're trying to transfer a packet of data. The other case, you're trying to transfer a packet of money, but you just have this like simple format and that's really the world has to agree on. And again, why that's so important is changing that is so hard. Like if you look at the internet protocol transition from version four to version six, and again, like this is getting a little bit technical, but Basically, um, when they came up with the internet, um, the version four that we mostly use even today still, mm -hmm. um, is it was intended as a quick test. And then Surf was quoted as saying that like, it was supposed to be like a test run. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to stick. <laughs> right. um, and so they had a limited address space. And when I say limited, it's like in the order of billions, but still when you're talking about all the devices that are connected nowadays, like billions is not a lot. Like we're actually reaching that number, you know? Um, and so the, the decision was made to upgrade it to a bigger address space where now, um, the number is so great. I can't even express it. Um, <laughs> you could have an internet uh, address for, um, for every grain of sand if you wanted to. Um, but, uh, rolling that out has been very difficult. I think it's been you know, well over a decade, um, of active work, um, maybe coming on two decades, even of actually yeah. trying to roll this out. Um, and so you want to avoid. Uh, changes to your core protocol and the simplicity gives you that. Yeah. And I think that, I think that was a really great description and, and really interesting to sort of compare, um, you know, what you're trying to do with interledger to sort of the underlying, you know, IP concept, um, you know, internet protocol concept. Um, but I do think, I do think it is funny for any, anyone who's followed the, the sort of challenges of moving from, from V4 to V6, <laughs> I think certainly recognizes the point that you're making about, yeah, having, having the simplicity there, uh, and, and being able to, 
you know, not have to make changes to it later on. And we also, spent, I, sorry, spent go ahead. so many, we spent so many hours, um, to, you know, as a team working on this protocol, thinking about like, what's our, you know, V4 mistake, right. like what's, you know, what are we going to mess up that we're later going to have to upgrade? And so it, that's a really hard question to answer. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, be, because, you know, part of, you know, part of the challenge was that even, even if, you know, Vint Cerf didn't expect, uh, you know, things to, you know, IPv4 to, to stick around, um, you know, I don't think anyone real realistically expected that you would use up all of the addresses, you know, because, because there were billions and, and why would you need, you know, that many, uh, addresses for anything. And yet now, you know, you know, just, just sitting them around me, I, I probably have, you know, 10 different devices that need their own IP addresses and, and, you know, and, 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 and probably lots of people have a lot more than that. Um, and so, and, and just the, the sort of explosion of these things. And it's hard to, it, it's, you know, especially in the early days, it's hard to fathom how that will, you know, how that will progress and how those things will change. Um, so, so, and then, so, so you worked on this idea and, and I, and I, you know, I, I get, and I appreciate sort of the idea behind it. And so what, um, you know, how, how did that, how did that go in terms of actually creating the interledger protocol? Um, you know, and, and sort of, you know, what is it being used for stuff and how is it being used now? Yeah. I mean, first of all, the actual work on it, it's, it's maybe not as exciting as you might imagine. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of it was arguing over things like my favorite example is, um, we spent a lot of time arguing over the number format, because if you're trying to express a packet of money, you have to figure out like, how do you express how much it is? Right. Right. And you could use a decimal number. So that would be basically two numbers. One is a, is an integer, you know, some amount. So let's say if it's in cents, then, um, it would be like 300 for a $3 amount. Right. Um, and then if you the second number would be where is the decimal separator right so like it would be two in this case to say like okay um, right you know 300 represents uh, you know three of the unit right. um that was one of the options another option was floating point which i'm sure like anyone who's worked on financial systems is, <laughs> is cringing right now that right. we even considered it but you know floating points have some advantages again i won't go into that whole debate it took us literally <laughs> months to decide this question um, what we ended up with is a simple, just an integer. Um, and the realization there was that the meaning of where the decimal point is, it's kind of a negotiation between two peers in the network, and it's not something that we have to globally specify and standardize. And huh. so it's actually kind of redundant to talk about where the separator is. It's, it's locally, it's, it's, it's apparent from context. So we're able to take that out. And, and so every single thing we could take out is something that can't create an IPv4 situation right. because we, we can't have made a wrong decision if we didn't make a decision at all. Um, <laughs> so, so there's a lot of that. I think that one of the more interesting ones and like maybe more substantial ones was, um, uh, we worked on, um, kind of one big difference when you're sending data versus sending money is, um, you know, you send a packet of data and somebody drops it along the way. Um, not a big deal. You just send it again right. once you find out that it didn't arrive. Um, you send a packet of money and it drops, <laughs> well, you can send it again, but that gets going to get, that's going to get expensive very quickly. Yeah. Um, and what's even worse is that if you're one of the, the routers along the path, um, and you drop a, a packet, um, because you know, some glitch happens or something, well, you know, think of it like this. If I give you $5 and I ask you to please pass it on to somebody, but something goes wrong and you, you don't pass it on, well, you still have it, right? You still, you keep right. it. Um, and that creates a really bad incentive. So like if your router is broken, like you kind of don't want to fix it too fast, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. and so that, that was a bit of a puzzle. Um, there's a solution that, that we came up with. Um, there's another team called, uh, the lightning, uh, protocol team. Yep. Um, they actually published it first as very similar architecture to Interledger in many ways, but it's more blockchain specific and whereas Interledger is really trying to be as general as possible is, is one way to characterize the difference. Um, and anyway, so that technique, that trick is to basically split each packet into two phases, a phase where you're sort of sending it from the sender along various hops to the recipient. Mm -hmm. And then the recipient essentially generates a, a receipt. Um, and it's actually the receipt traveling back that creates obligations to pay. 
Um, and if you think about that, then what that does is it flips all the incentives upside down. So previously, yep. if I was a router and I was passing on these packets and if I drop one, I make money. Well, now if I don't pass the receipt back, well, I've created an outbound obligation to my to the next peer in the chain forward. Um, but I haven't created an obligation for somebody to pay me before before me in the chain. And so I'm now out the money if I'm down. And so right. that creates an incentive to fix your router as quickly as you can. And that's sort of in your control, right? Like you can control the uptime of your router with redundancies and um, you know the, 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 the connection between you and your peers being very reliable and things like that. So there's ways to address that and it creates the right incentive to, to do so. Um, so those are kind of some of the things that we worked on. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you get to a point where like the protocol kind of works, um, but then you have to think about how do you actually get it out there? Right. And so, uh, what, what, what have you done to get it out there? <laughs> well, you know, so again, for us, it's all about learning from, from what works and what has worked in the past. And so uh -huh. if you look at the internet protocol. You know, you might have naively assumed that, well, people were using um, the phone infrastructure for phone calls and um, the fax infrastructure for sending documents. And so the internet would just be sort of an upgrade on those, right? Like you could now make phone calls over the internet. You can now send documents over the internet. Um, and interestingly, especially in the example of phone calls, it's a really good one. Um, that's, that's not what happened at all. Like that right. was sort of like the last use case that the internet did an okay job at, you know? Yeah. And when you think about it, it kind of makes a lot of sense because, you know, you're building this novel generic infrastructure. So when it first comes out, it's going to be a little rough around the edges. Um, and it's not going to compete with a, something that's a much more established, like the phone infrastructure, it's already global and there's already, you know, lots of money invested in it. Um, and B, that is specifically designed for phone calls. You know, you're not going to have yep. a generic thing. It's not going to be as good at that one thing that the other infrastructure is designed for. And so when we looked at IntelliJ's use cases, we kind of st said like, well, we're probably not going to be as good at remittances as dedicated remittance infrastructure that had decades to evolve. Um, and so maybe existing use cases isn't necessarily the place you want to start. Um, but one use case that did stick out, and it's kind of funny again, because when you look at all these weird little connections, like I was mentioning with the term micropayments and its origins, um, when you look at uh, the use case of how do you pay for content on the web, there is no payment system that really addresses that today. And, and people have tried um, various sure. approaches, but the challenge has always been that, you know, the only way you can do payments that efficiently today is if they're all concentrated in inside of a company if they're just sort of book transfers within one company um and that approach is obviously limiting if you're trying to make a global standard right you can't say you know everyone has to be a, a customer of of you know i'm not going to throw any particular company under the bus but of this <laughs> one company um in order to be able to to use the internet you know like right. you can't really say that and so intelligent really opens the door for that for the first time and so it doesn't matter that it's not as efficient as it probably will be someday. Um, it, the only thing it has to compete with is other alternatives, which, which, which are things like advertising or subscriptions. And we can get into why I think those are kind of hacks or workarounds. They're not a true, true solution to the problem. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I agree with you there, but just, I, I think this is, this is an important point. It's worth sort of digging in a little bit on, you know, this idea that, you know, when you have these sort of new platforms or new technologies, um, you know, I think that it is natural for the first thing that people think of is, you know, replicating what was already done, right? And and you use the example of like, you know, voice over IP kind of thing. Um, and, you know, and that it's sort of a, a, a natural and almost expected failure of our imaginations. I think that that is kind of the first thing that everybody does. Uh, and then of course, because of that, everyone says, Oh, well, it's not worth it. We already have this, this system. Um, and I always think that, yeah, you know, the big breakthroughs come when people realize like, Oh wait, this actually enables something new and, and different. Um, and like, you know, this is, is, this is not the same thing. Uh, but you know, the, the example I've used in the past on this is like when, um, you know, phones started having cameras in them. Like there were all of these articles, 
Um, and I used to have a, a list of them, all these things saying like, well, you know, the cameras inside phones are terrible and they're not as good as just, you know, having a little point and shoot camera or whatever. Uh, why would anyone waste, uh, waste space by putting a, a camera into a phone? It's, it's completely useless. And I kept trying to explain to people like, you know, it's not, it's not the fact that there's a camera there. It's the fact that it's a connected camera, right? And the, the idea is that as you have more mobile broadband and more, you know, connectivity through your phone, and as certainly as the phones get more powerful and the technology gets better, you're going to enable all, all sorts of new things that weren't possible and that you can't do with a point and shoot camera. And that's what's cool about it, not replicating the point and shoot camera. Uh, and so, you know, whenever I see things like this, I, I kind of think along the same lines, which is what is the new thing that it's enabling that wasn't really possible before, rather than just worrying about replicating the, the old system. Uh, and so I, you know, I think that's, that's sort of what you're describing with, you know, can we come up with a different way to, to monetize content on the web that wasn't really possible before and sort of corrects for a lot of the problems with the, the, the sort of hack together systems that we've seen. And there's a, a very related point that I think is quite interesting. Um, you know, when you have this existing infrastructure, so not only are you not going to do, you're going to be able to compete with it, but you have to somehow leverage it because right. let's say you invent the internet, you're not going to out of nowhere convince people to lay down a bunch of new cables to every household right. you know, just to enable this potentially interesting technology. Right. Um, and so what, what, what happened instead is really fascinating. It's these kind of workarounds to piggyback on existing infrastructure investments. So yep. um, the, the, the great example there is the modem, the dial-up modem, right? Yep. So you're making essentially a phone call to your internet <laughs> provider. You're converting your beautiful, elegant internet packets into some random noises. Well, not random, but like some, some structured <laughs> noises. Um, and then you try to convert it back into the data and like, you know, hopefully you'll get something similar ish to what you put in. Right. right. Um, and, um, I, I remember seeing this picture of like an old modem and I don't know how widespread this particular type was, but it literally had, um, a place where you would put your phone receiver yes. and you would just put it on the modem. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I had one. And... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So maybe they were more prevalent. But it's like, that is, that to me, like that picture sort of encapsulated the yeah. approach you have to take when you first build a system like this. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about like, what does dial up Interledger look like? And, and like, what is the, what is the dialing up into the Interledger world look like? Um, and it probably involves something like, you know, riding on bank rails or, or likely credit card rails, debit card rails, mm -hmm. um, and kind of having these, um, aggregated transaction, like bigger transactions where you settle every once in a while, you, you pay once a month or something like that. And then, um, each one of those transactions could, could represent, you know, millions or, or you know, even more of, of Interledger packets. And so, um, not to skip ahead too far, but that's kind of, um, the, the approach we ended up taking with, with coil. Yeah. So, so, um, I mean, do you want to talk about coil now and sort of what it is trying to do and how it's, how it's trying to, to build out these kinds of ideas? Yeah. I mean, we kind of mentioned like, okay, so we had this protocol in the lab and how do how did we, how did we approach taking it into the real yeah. world? And, um, yeah, we, we kind of looked at the use case. So, so that that's already a good first step. It's like have a use case of a problem that, that you can solve for people. Um, but then also you have to think about the actual, you know, venue or the actual approach. Like I was still uh, leading a research team at Ripple, which is a company that's primarily selling solutions to, to banks and financial institutions. Um, and, and I remember kind of floating some, um, you know, tentative queries and, and seeing if some of our customers might be interested in, in innovative forms of micropayments and things like that. Um, I remember having a conversation where um, I kind of, thought that we were talking past each other. It was with somebody in corporate payments, payments at a bank. And, um, after a while I asked them like, what's actually your definition of a micropayment? And they said completely seriously with, with a straight face, oh, that's any payment under $10,000. <laughs> and I was kind of like, <laughs> wow, that's insane. And so, so, yeah, so, I mean, it makes sense because like their typical payment is like, you know, 10 million or something right. like that. So but still, um, I mean, it, it just made me think that maybe banks aren't the first adopters for this. <laughs> right. um, 
<laughs> and um, I started looking for, you know, like, well, how do innovative payment technologies usually come out there? And it's usually via startups that are more consumer targeted. Right. Um, and so, you know, we ended up deciding to start a new company, the, you know, what became Coil. Um, and the goal is essentially to take some of this technology and, and maybe, you know, take some inspiration from the earliest internet service providers where, um, you know, it wasn't cheap. It wasn't, you know, the greatest experience, right? Like you had to dial up into it and it's a little bit rough around the edges, but it was a piece of the future. It was really like a preview of what the world could be. Right. Um, and a chance also for people who wanted to bring about that better world to actively contribute to it and experience it and, and engage with it. Um, I remember when I got my first internet connection, it was an absolute magical thing, even though every time I, I turned it on, it would kick my dad off of a phone call and he would come, you know, screaming at me, you know? So, so I think, it, I think it's like, obviously we're, we're, we're aiming for the best experience that we can provide for our customers, but I also, you know, I want to be realistic in terms of like, this is very new technology and it's, it's mostly cool and interesting. And, um, we're very excited to, to bring it to market. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's been sort of my take on it as well, you know, and, and, you know, we, you know, we're using it on TechDirt now, but it's, it's very much an experiment for us and, and sort of figuring out like, you know, this is a really cool concept that, that has so much potential, I think, to enable a bunch of really cool ideas around, you know, business models and, and monetization. And, and we wanted to just be able to sort of, you know, play with it. Right. I mean, that, that's sort of my reaction, like, you know, in the early days of, of the internet and when I first got on the internet and, and when I first saw, um, you know, the World Wide web, uh, you know, my, 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 you know, I had been using the internet for, uh, well, I'm going to try not to completely age myself for a little while before, <laughs> before the web, uh, came along. And when I first saw the, the, um, the original, uh, mosaic browser that that Mark Andreessen had developed, um, you know, I thought like, okay, this is sort of like, I, I'd been using Gopher for a while, if you're familiar with Gopher, uh, and and saw the World Wide Web, and I was like, okay, this is the next thing, and then after that, there'll be something else, but it, you know, which is not exactly how it worked out, uh, but just like the idea that like it was something that you could really play with, right? I mean, you could take the the early web and and suddenly like this whole world opened up of things that you could do. And so suddenly like figuring out, you know, basic HTML and how do you build a web page and, and then figuring out how to do creative things. You know, this is, you know, in the very early days where you, you know, you didn't have all the power that you have today. Um, and certainly not like, you know, JavaScript or, or you know, this is still pre JavaScript and, and, and all of these other things to actually build like applications. Um, but you just had this, system um that you could you could build on and you could play around with and do a bunch of different things with and that's kind of the way that 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 i view coil from you know from what i've seen and and in talking to you and just sort of getting it set up is that you know this is the early days but you have this potential to build something cool and just like you know when i was first building you know very crappy static web pages uh in the early 1990s you know i had no idea you know, what the web was going to look like today. We're, you know, like right now, for example, we're recording this through a web app, you know, which was completely unfathomable, <laughs> you know, when I was first playing around with the web, you know, I, I think that there's real potential to have this system on which like really cool and different methods of monetization can be built. Um, and that we can't even, you know, quite fathom what they are today. And, you know, I like the fact that that you're building it based on this sort of idea of an open protocol rather than a proprietary solution, because it feels like, especially, you know, within the last 10 to 15 years, you know, so much of the focus has moved away from open protocols that anyone can build on and anyone can do stuff with towards much more locked in proprietary kind of silos of, of things where, where all of the control goes to a single company. Um, and so like everything about this sort of takes me back to, to the early days. This kind of makes me a little bit giddy you know, to, to see this, this approach, which, you know, I, I seem to have gone so out of style, but I think, you know, creates so much potential to do really cool things with it. Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, honestly, like, I mean, I know this sounds very, um, I don't know, like I would say that, 
But uh, the response has been absolutely overwhelming since we launched it. Like, there's clearly so much interest in solving this problem out there. Um, I'll give you a couple of things that, that we've done and kind of what the reaction has been. Um, you know, for we we created a grant which was essentially to um, to kind of promote people experimenting with the technology. It's called the Grant for the Web, and we did that in partnership with uh, Mozilla and Creative Commons, um, two nonprofit organizations that are sort of known for being you know, yeah. guardians of, of some of the web um, and the openness of it. Um, and the, um, you know, when we originally put it out there, like we, we put it out there with the with a pretty big number, a $100 million grant, um, you know, but in the context of, if you look at what, like, what is Google's budget, what is next Netflix's <laughs> right. budget, it's, it's like literally a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Um, but not literally. I hate when people misuse that word. So I don't <laughs> want to upset your listeners. But um, you know, it's it's a drop in the ocean, metaphorically speaking. And um, the the response, though, like that, you can sort of see like community coming forward and making all these proposals. And like we put together a, a full time grant team that is going to re is reviewing all these proposals, and they are working the hardest I've ever seen anybody work. I mean, they're literally, you know, weekends, nights, you know, any, any time they, they have a minute, they, they're just working on, on reviewing these grant proposals because there's just so many of them and so many good ones that you don't want to say no to. Um, and then you see um, on grantfortheweb.org, if your listeners are interested, they can go check out what the, some of the recipients have been so far. Um, and you can scroll through all the different projects and there's just so many amazing ones there. Um, so I don't know, I'm just really excited. That's just one grant project that we kicked off. There's so many other things that where people in the community are adopting it or building with it and making little widgets and open source projects and libraries and things like that. Um, we have a, a site for developers at developers.carl.com, um, where we try to list some of the projects, but it's already kind of a losing <laughs> game to even try to catalog it all. So, um, this is the kind of thing where, you know, obviously that's what we were hoping for. Um, right. And, and, um, you know, it's not the same as, as kind of mass, mass market adoption, which I think we're still quite far away from, but having that sort of enthusiastic community, I think is really powerful. And then also, um, you know, when we were going into it, like, it was actually kind of interesting to, to, to talk to some younger people. And like, we talked to a lot of creators and a lot of them are younger kind of independent creators that grew up in like the age of YouTube and Instagram and, and these kinds of platforms. And, um, they're not necessarily familiar with the early web the way you and I might be, right? Right. Um, and it's actually kind of interesting to have conversations with them about openness. And like, oftentimes it comes down to things like, well, why do I care? And then you ask them like, well, have you had any any issues with using YouTube? Like, oh my God, I had so many issues with the <laughs> algorithm. I had issues with demonetization and this and this and this. And, and sort of telling them like, well, could you imagine what it would be like if there were more alternatives and like you could have different providers sort of vying for, for where you could host your content as opposed to like having to pick from, you know, what type of content are you going to make and who owns the monopoly for that type of content or like the duopoly or whatever it is, you know? Right. Um, and so, um, and then sort of their eyes light up and they're like, wow, yeah, that would be way better. <laughs> so um, I, I'm mostly excited to like kind of get younger people interested in, in some of these, these issues and like why you should care about platforms and, and the problems that they tend to create. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's really important. Like I, I've, it's it's funny because I've been sort of thinking about that a lot, just in general, and and sort of how, um, you know, and and often I think it's 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 not just like you know younger people who are just creators or whatever, but like like a, sort of this generation of entrepreneurs doesn't remember kind of the some aspects of, of the open internet and why it was important. And that concerns me for, for a variety of reasons in terms of like the direction that, that you know, things might go in um, and, you know, having the benefits of, of open protocols and being able to build on them. Um, and so it's, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things with, with sort of interledger and, and web monetization, you know, I've talked to a few people about it um, because, well, <laughs> because I've gotten so excited about it and I'm just like randomly talking to all different people about it. Um, and, and, you know, some of the people I've talked to don't quite get it. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I, I've been trying to like figure out the best way to explain why it's so cool and like why there's so much opportunity here. And part of it is just the fact that, you know, now you're starting to see all of these different projects and, and developers starting to experiment with it. And that's where, you know, things are going to come from, right? You know, whereas, 
the model that we've seen with so much stuff these days is like, you know, just, you know, one company comes out with a product and you're sort of stuck in, in their vision. And, you know, you can try and influence it and, and, you know, make customer service requests or, you know, uh, or in other ways, trying to try and push them in a certain direction. Whereas, you know, having an open protocol where, you know, any developer can just sort of go in and, and, you know, figure out what things can be built on it and see what others are doing and be inspired by that and build something else and, and having it all, you know, sort of come together, um, you know, creates all of this opportunity for whatever is next to really show up. Um, you know, it, it just, it's, it's just a, a much better way I think of, of developing things, um, than in the past. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that there's been so much, you know, uh, effort around the, the development side of this and, and people figuring out things. And I think, you know, as in the same way that like in the early days of the internet, you had people saying like, why, like, why would I want to be on the internet? Why would I want to talk to you know, random people or, or connect with them or, or, you know, see web pages, you know, there, believe it or not, you know, people forget this, but there were a lot of people who are like, I don't get the, the internet in, in the early days. Um, and so, you know, I think we're seeing some of that with, with this as well, but the possibility of, you know, of really sort of redefining, um, you know, how, how, you know, content on the web is created and how it's supported, um, is, is such a powerful thing and it's so important. And like a lot of the, the sort of fights and arguments that people have had over content creation and how do people get paid for it in the past sort of, you know, fade away. If the, if, you know, solutions like this really can, can be brought about and, and, um, you know, be made useful in, in all sorts of ways. So I'm, I'm super excited about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I often think about it's like, how do you explain why this is important? And um, I mean, the, the kinds of things that people care about is, is sort of things like free expression of ideas and, um, you know, giving people opportunity um, and, and like whatever your specific goals are, privacy, I think is a big one as well. Um, and, and I could go on, but it's important to take those things, which are like, what do we actually want and tie them back to openness? Because I don't think right. we want openness purely because we want openness. It's because we want the, you know, diversity and, and uh, opportunity and other things that come along with it. Um, and so you have to kind of show the mechanisms of how these things are connected. And, and I'll kind of give you an example from my own experience. Like I was a, a freelance web developer and like, I love developing for the web because it made me extremely independent. I could host things with any number of different hosting companies. Um, I could um, market them with any number of different marketing tools that were available to me. Um, and the, 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 where the, the problem started to creep in was when I wanted to make money off of the project because right. there weren't any good options there. And so what, you know, myself and a lot of other developers ended up doing was kind of moving towards the, the app store model on, on mobile phones. Um, and it's kind of interesting to look at. It's like a lot, there were a lot of different um, mobile operating systems that were actually competing. Like I remember WebOS and, and a number mm -hmm. of other ones like Firefox OS. And um, if you look at some of those, it's like, it's very interesting that um, even within that, the evolution, like for example, Firefox OS, where they started out wanting it to be very web-based, but then you know, even just like developer feedback and everything kind of drew them back into more of an app store like model. Um, and I think a big part of that is monetization because like if you're making yeah. a web page and you always have to use advertising and there isn't like any kind of good infrastructure platform for, you know, direct support and payments and things like that, you know, there's like building infrastructure you need and you need, uh, you know, keeping track of what people have bought. So like, what do they have access to and things like that? Um, and that all becomes like, something that a app store is is relatively good at solving and so if you can address the the monetization friction on the open web by having sort of a native built-in way and like really you know just to say the vision a little bit more clearly like what is the actual end state that we would like to see is really like when you get an internet connection part of your internet bill is just web monetization right it's just built right. into your internet connection um, and so you don't even think about it. Like you don't have to install anything that's built into your browser. You don't have to do any special setup. It just sort of, you know, maybe just even like some kind of auto configuration thing that, that internet providers you know, come up with. Um, and so then when you actually go to a website, it's already all taken care of for you pretty right. much. And so 
the website, you know, it can still show you ads, you know, like some websites will choose to do that to make extra money. Um, right. Or, you know, for whatever other reasons, but um, they don't have to. I think that's really powerful to say, like a lot of people we've talked to, you know, they weren't able to to build the projects that they wanted to or, you know, keep maintaining projects that they were excited about because they just weren't comfortable putting ads on there and, and sort of, you know, some of the privacy implications or some of the other implications that come along with that. Or maybe their content just wasn't very suitable for ads. Like one thing that I didn't realize going into this was, you know, if you think about it, like if I'm an advertiser, um, well, I'm going to be very picky with where I put my ads because I'm going to be associated with that content. Um, right. So one of one of the really canonical examples of that is is if I'm um, if I'm going to be an advertiser, I probably don't want to be associated with anything political or kind of controversial. Um, so things like the Hong Kong protests or other things like would often get demonetized on YouTube. Um, there are these sort of, sort of subtle, you know, as what Google calls the publisher guidelines, which is sort of right. things that topics you may want to stay away from. <laughs> um, my favorite example of this is like, if you search for YouTube um, demonetization word list, um, you're going to find a list that some YouTubers put together, which is just a list of words and whether they think they're safe or whether they think they need to demonetization. <laughs> and there's all sorts of things about, you know, um, LGBTQ or right. um, political things, lifestyle things, um, sexuality, like all kinds of stuff that, that can get you demonetized just because like, you know, it's just not the best place to put ads. Right. Um, and those things just shouldn't be connected. Like you should right. be able to make content, um, that people find useful, interesting, uh, you know, inspiring, whatever the case may be, um, uh, without worrying about whether it's, you know, quote unquote brand safe or like. Right. Something that brands want to be on. Yeah, and I, I mean it's funny because this is this is uh, partly how I first found out about you guys and, and got in touch with you was because we ended up in a in a argument with Google uh, over AdSense ads uh, because they told us that some of our content was too controversial, and you know <laughs> what was funny was like you know part of the the content that they found too controversial was like our discussion on content moderation questions. And like, in some sense, actually defending Google's content moderation decisions, uh, and and then they de deem that to be too controversial for advertisers to to to, to put ads against. And there there's some level of irony in there. And right, you know, that, so that we, is very meta, as the kids say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, so we ended up pulling AdSense off of our site because it just was, you know, it was becoming too much of a pain. We were getting these notifications every day saying that, you know, and, and we're not. Not like, you know, like I don't want to be driven by that, right? You know, I'm not going to make decisions on what I write about based on whether or not Google's AdSense policies are upset about it. Um, and, you know, so we, we just drop them entirely. But like, you know, then that creates an, an issue for us, right? Because that is at least, you know, one of our sources of revenue. And so, tr you know, trying to figure out that thing, but like it, that was like, it, it really, you know, that bugged me. Like we, we shouldn't, have to be thinking about that aspect of it, even if like, I understand all of the incentive structure that's there. And I think that, you know, Google as a private company has the right to make those decisions on its own. And I understand why they do it. And in that case, you know, what's driving it is the advertisers. And I understand why advertisers don't necessarily want their ads against, you know, what they refer to as controversial content, though I don't think our stuff was actually that controversial, but whatever. Um, but, you know, so the incentive structure is all sort of messed up there. And, and so, you know, part of what I, you know, I, what's cool about this is you're sort of trying to rethink that, that incentive structure to make it work much better for these kinds of things. And, and, you know, at the same time, sort of getting past, you know, my issue with micropayments going back, you know, to the, the beginning of the discussion about micropayments was that, you know, they created some level of friction, which was a problem. And one of the cool things about, I think the way you guys have, have set stuff up is you're really trying to minimize that friction question um, or almost eliminate it entirely, right? Where you were saying, you know, just have it sort of built into the whole system where the monetization just kind of happens in the background without having to, to, to add that load. And then, you know, one of the things that, that drove my thinking on, on micropayments in particular was like, Clay Shirky's article from, I don't even know how long ago it was, and I'm not sure if you've seen it, but probably if you've been looking at micropayment history, <laughs> but, you know, he wrote this whole thing about, you know, thinking about micropayments in which everyone would have to make a decision. Like, you know, am I going to, 
you know, pay, you know, half a cent for this content or whatever it was, that it added a layer of mental friction, just like you have to think about whether or not this is worth it or not. Um, whereas, you know, I think the system that you're setting up is really designed to get past that entirely, where it's not, you don't have to think about like, is this worth it or not, just because of the, the, you know, the structure of the idea that, you know, you're paying sort of X amount and it is being sort of spread out among different things that you visit. Um, and you don't have to say like, oh, I, you know, I have to worry about how, how much this is worth to me in particular. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're still at the very beginning of this um, yeah. evolution. Um, I think that there were sort of, again, I feel like I'm repeating myself. I hope it's not too boring, but again, learning from history, like there's been so many awesome companies that have, have tried to do things around micropayments. And just to name a few of the ones that um, I, I think are really interesting are um, Flatter um, was yep. one that I personally used, which was really cool. Yeah, we um, use that too. Yeah, there you go. There's there's um, a Brave kind of from the blockchain world. Yep. Um, with with uh, kind of coming more from a browser background, but again, like a very interesting approach. Um, scroll, that's kind of more focused on news. Uh, Blendall, which I think is a, a more European-based uh, company that's also very focused on news and publishing. Um, and they all have slightly different approaches, but I think the, the challenge that I've always ha seen there in, in a lot of micropayments is um, kind of, again, you're once again relying on a platform, right? Like you're relying on this provider so unless you can actually create interoperability um, across providers with something like Interledger, um, there's sort of a, I don't know, natural cap on, on how, how big it can get. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest difference with, with web monetization as an approach. Um, and then the other things is like, we just try to learn from, from you know, others in terms of what are sort of the best practices. I think automation is a big one. I, I remember from my own personal experience with the earlier versions of Flutter, um, it was just hard to remember to always click the Flutter yep. button when I liked something. <laughs> um, and so I ended up not doing it. And their fallback was to kind of give the money to charity, like give you a monthly donation to charity instead, which obviously not a bad thing, but kind of not really the, the point of the system. And so right. um, I think they recognized that. So they rolled out Flutter 2.0, which was more automated. Um, and so I think that's already things that, that we didn't have to come up with. Like there were a lot of people already have thought about this problem. I've, I've tried different things. Um, I remember I worked for a company called Elote, Elote 24, which was a German speaking, uh, ebook store. Um, mm -hmm. and when we started out, we would sell ebooks kind of one, one by one. And then we switched to a flat rate model and the revenue just skyrocketed compared to what it was before. Um, and you know, when we asked people, like we would even get like people that would sign up for the subscription and then never actually access right. the ebooks. Um, and we would talk to them and we'd be like, Hey, you know, we're really sorry that we weren't able to provide a lot of value to you. And like you, you paid for the subscription, you didn't get anything out of it. And, um, they would say that, no, 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 I actually, you know, we, we, we subscribe to this and I, I actually enjoy the fact that I could have access to this wealth of knowledge anytime. I just didn't have any particular need to right. access it in this particular time period, but I still appreciate having access to all of it. Um, and that was a, a, a conversation or experience that so stuck with me getting that kind of feedback. Um, I think it is, you know, I, I want to create that feeling, but across the whole web where like you, you have this one subscription and obviously the challenge for us as Coil is, is kind of communicating the benefits because they are a little bit vague, like well, some sites turn off ads, some sites might give you extra content. Most sites don't do anything, but you're supporting them. Like it's very hard to, to make that into a co coherent value proposition that you can put into a, you know, 30 second Super Bowl ad or something. Um, but it is, it, that's ultimately what it is. Like you're, you're sort of, um, you're, you're creating a, an environment of where you're supporting creators. And so think of it like karma almost like you're sort of creating good <laughs> karma for yourself and then you know it's up to the creators of the websites and, and developers and things like that to, to think about like if they want to you know reward that in some way or give you back something um even if it's a, just as simple as like you know where the ad would have been put a little thank you message or right. you know it's, you know we've always talked about you know you know, we want content to be free, so we don't necessarily want content to be behind paywalls. And, and especially if sites are currently free, we don't think they should make it you know, right. monetization exclusive. 
but there's a lot of things you can do like you know behind the scenes and making off and the uncensored version or things like that yep. that you can make that is um just a little bit extra for people who go out of their way to, to support yeah. the web yeah totally and and that's like one of the things that we've tried to experiment with on with on our own you know at TechTurt, where we've done things where it's like you know if you support us you can get slightly earlier access to the articles or get you know access to a, a chat with the with the writers and and different things like that like we want to add you know different features to make it you know to make it worthwhile but we don't want to put our stuff behind a paywall because we don't you know i don't i don't think that's appropriate either and i you know i want the information out there um and so you know that's part of why i'm i'm really excited to keep thinking about and experimenting you know, with coil and, and all this stuff. Cause I think like, you know, we've been, <laughs> you know, I've personally been thinking about this for, for 20 plus years <laughs> and to have a, a system in place that, that, you know, maybe will make it easier for us to enable some of these, you know, crazy wacky ideas that occasionally I'll come up with in the middle of the night, <laughs> you know, is, is kind of really exciting. So, um, and it also goes back to this point of community that we were talking about. It's like, yeah, it just takes one person to have a clever idea on how to make like a good reward for supporters and then for everyone else to copy it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, again, like we're very much at the beginning of that process. Um, but I'm really excited to see what people come up with. And I'm also kind of encouraging my team here at Coil to, um, to, to think about what that could look like. And, um, I think in many ways, like we see our role as a little bit in the background, um, trying to provide the pipes and making sure that, you know, Interledger works and keeps running. And right now, a big topic for us is kind of the cost of Interledger infrastructure, um, kind of lowering the, the actual server costs. Like there's mm -hmm. obviously still a lot of low hanging fruit in terms of lowering that cost. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think those are the kinds of things that we're mostly focused on. Um, but we also want to kind of help bootstrap the community a little bit with some ideas and, and, and kind of help people along. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, um, yeah, I could geek out on this stuff forever, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm, uh, we may be pressing the, uh, the, uh, extent of what our listeners will, <laughs> will listen to. So, uh, I, I think we're going to wrap up this, this discussion, but you know, this is, uh, this is such fascinating stuff to me and it's stuff that, you know, I've been thinking about forever and, and this is such a, a cool project and, and something that I think is, you know, really has tremendous potential to, to change a lot of the way we think about, you know, content on the internet. Uh, and, and so, you know, I was really excited to find out about it and then, you know, to, to talk to you about it and then to have this, this conversation uh, on the podcast. Maybe, maybe and, the, Maybe the longer session is, is someday bonus content for supporters. <laughs> exactly. There we go. For people who really, really geek out on this like we do. Uh, then exactly. Yes. <laughs> but, but thank you so much for taking the time and for, for everything that you've done with this. And, uh, you know, we're, as I said, we're planning to do a lot more experimentation with this stuff and, and um, you know, try and come up with some cool ideas on, on things that we can do and, and to pay attention to what everybody else is doing and, and seeing what, you know, what the community itself develops. So, um, you know, thanks, thanks so much for, for taking the time and having this conversation. Yeah. And, and thank you for having me on here because, you know, oftentimes like, you know, when you're more coming from the research side, uh, you spend time in the lab coming up with cool ideas, but you sort of face with this problem of like, a good idea is really not worth much if nobody knows it exists, you know? And so <laughs> right. being able to, to spread the word and like, um, hopefully some people listen to this and like get excited and, and, you know, go to grant for the web or go to color.com to like figure out more about it. And, um, yeah, we, we definitely really appreciate any kind of feedback, um, that you guys want to give us, or, um, if you want to just take this, I mean, it's all open technology. So like, if you want to take it in a different direction than what we're doing with it, um, that's also very welcoming. We've talked a lot about web monetization, but Interledger could really be used for all kinds of things. Like imagine, um, you know, file sharing where um, the creators actually get paid. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not just piracy, you know. I think there's a lot of things. I mean, obviously not all file sharing today is piracy, but right. um, I think that it would just expand the scope of it dramatically if you could actually make money by putting content on on BitTorrent, for example. I'd be yeah. interested yeah no i think that's that's a, a fascinating space and, and, and like i had had conversations with people about that like 15 years ago and like the early sort of 
you know, BitTorrent days and, and, you know, ideas on how you could provide monetization for the original artists and, and that never, never seemed to go anywhere. So yeah, there, there is, there, there, I mean, this is, has so much potential and I hope that more people recognize that as well. Um, because, you know, th think about exactly that. Like, you know, if you could go back to those kinds of things rather than, you know, having to use like just the, you know, what Spotify has put behind its silo or whatever, um, and you could create a, a real system where the artists actually do get paid and, um, you know, and, and people get to share stuff and it, it like brings back the fun aspect of, of file sharing, <laughs> you know, there, yep. there's, there's so much cool stuff there. So again, like, um, I feel like I'm about to start going down another path and continue to talk <laughs> I know. I, was, I got the same feeling. I was like, we, should, we need to wrap up. Um, yeah. But, uh... So for our, our listeners, uh, thank you so much for, for listening to this as well. And I hope that, that many of our listeners get excited about it. Thank you so much for, for listening to this as well. And I hope that, that many of our listeners get excited about monetization, check out Grant for the Web um, and all these different projects that Stefan has, has uh, been instrumental in. Uh, and 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 let us know what you think and and if you have ideas for Tectored and what we should be doing with this, let us know too because we've been doing a bunch of brainstorming uh, and and we're excited to to see what comes next. But uh, thanks for everyone for listening and Stefan, thanks for for taking the time and talking about it. Hey,